Thank you. I love it when I get clapped for before I've done anything. Um, amazing or present or just present. Good to see you. My name is David. Uh, like Shauna said, I love getting to open up the word with y'all because this is my community. This is the place where I get to uh, be in the midst of uh, people who love Jesus and want to follow him together. So we are going to dive into week two of our sermon series called Interfaces. But as we do that, uh, would you pray with me as we dive in together? God, in the midst of all the things that distract us. We want to give you our full attention. With the noise and the things that fill our mind and fill our hearts and fill our emotions. and um, God, we uh, in one moment say thank you for all you've given us and in the other moment we say we're sorry for the way we've used what you've given us. So God, would you guide, would you lead, would you speak through me, would you be uh, the one moving, would your spirit convict and breathe life into places that are broken? Um, and God, we say thank you and we love you. Amen. Amen. Well, the first thing I need to say is uh, the nine o'clock is not normally this full. Is there a football game happening or something? <laughs> do, do, do we have any converts from the 11 o'clock service that have made their way here? And if you are here, we welcome you. And uh, may, maybe it'll breathe some new amens into the 9 o'clock community. Because if you've never been to the 11 o'clock service, they get down. Um, and they start bringing it. So feel free. Let, let's go. Um, so this, uh, the sermon uh, that we're doing today, it's part of this Interfaces series. Uh, but the title of it is Connection or Community. Because what we're talking about today is this digitally saturated world that we live in that, that is filled with social media and online networks and online communities and Facebook and, and uh, Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram and, and all these different ways that we are constantly inundated to connect. And so the question is, what does discipleship look like in this world? Because if you don't know how to do it, the truth is nobody's ever experienced this before. This is a brand new context to try and do discipleship, to try and be faithful to Jesus. So we're going to ask the question, how do we live that out? Now, if you were here last week, uh, Greg provided for us the history of technology from a million years ago to today, starting with the advent of fire, uh, which... If that sounds like a lot to bite off in one sermon, it's because that's a lot to bite off in one sermon. And uh, so if you miss that, you miss some stuff, so you may want to catch up. But here's the deal. We're going to focus today more on like the last couple decades rather than the last million years. But what, what I want to uh, do first is go back about 20 years, because 20 years ago, I was in high school. And I know, I know. How could that possibly be? Uh, and here's the deal. When I was in high school, I know this will shock you when you look at this specimen of a man in front of you, but I was pretty scrawny. Shocking. I was not very athletic. I was a theater nerd. I spent most of my days hanging out with three church buddies in my parents' basement, like every night. That's just what we did because my mom would buy pizza. And so we would just hang out there. And so I, I learned the incredible art when I was in high school of how to wear purple tights and make it look good. 
And I learned that you can fight and dance at the same time. Well, I was in West Side Story and we would go, and when you snapped, apparently you won if you snapped better than the other person. But I was a catch in high school. And here's the thing, there was this girl. And I know you're thinking to yourself, how could she have resisted? And yet she resisted. And the, so there was the, me and this buddy of mine, we both liked the same girl. And so what happened was we would be in my parents' basement talking about how we liked the same girl and never would actually ask her out because we were in my parents' basement eating pizza. And why would you go somewhere? And so eventually he had the nerve, he had the excitement, he had the, the chutzpah to walk out and ask her out. And to my dismay, she said yes. And I remember when he told me they were going out on a date and he said they were going to go to a hockey game. And I thought to myself, well, that's weird, but good luck with that. And so they went out on a date to a hockey game, and I did what any normal person would do. First of all, I cried um, because I was like, this is the end. She's never going to be mine. And I, I, but then I did what other people would do, which was I turned on the TV to watch the hockey game because my hope was in between periods, they would pan across and I would see the two of them and she would be standing up yelling at him and would slap him in the face and say, I'm going to go find David. And none of that happened. She never came to find me and thankfully that never worked out because now I'm married to the best person in the world and I know, I know. But here's what I was wondering about. What would that have been like today. Like, I, it wouldn't have just been, well, let me turn on TV and hope it pans to them. It would have been, okay, now I'm seeing the picture of them hugging each other on Instagram, or now I'm seeing their live Facebook story that they're tweeting out there, or now I'm seeing maybe they posted something on Snapchat, or like, I would literally be watching minute by minute my heart break as they are hanging out together. And so the reality is, this is a different world. Even just in the last 20 years, it is massively different and nobody has tried to follow Jesus in this context before. It's hard. And yet at the same time, there are some amazing blessings. Like, because I love you, I have been doing some research over the last couple weeks and what I have found is that Candy Crush is amazingly addictive. <laughs> and it is an incredible blessing and I am far too... Um, I have progressed way more in two weeks in a game than you possibly should, which if this sermon is not great, it's because I have done really well in Candy Crush. But what I've also discovered is that I can do a PhD in a school in Belgium, and that's not a big thing. Like, we can connect in ways we've never been able to connect before, that, that we have access. Like, I, at any given moment, I could pull my phone out and look at what some of the greatest thinkers and theologians and thought leaders of our time are thinking before their book comes out. I mean, what a blessing. At any given moment, we can hear what our president is thinking. <laughs> Praise God for technology. We have instant access to news and... It, it, on a more somber note, the reality too is that there, are, there have been and there always will be communities of people and individuals who, no matter what you try and do, the context within which you are in locally, there is nobody that is like-minded to what you think and who you are. And so what, what online communities and social media has done is given us a place at times where we feel known. 
where we feel heard, where there are these tribes that form around, even though your community might make you feel like you're an oddball, you can find a tribe somewhere that makes you feel like, oh, these are my people. This is my tribe. And last week, Greg mentioned this principle of proportionality. And this principle of proportionality is that to the extent that something has the potential to be good, it also has the equal and opposite in proportion potential to do damage. That to the degree that it's beautiful that we can find a like-minded tribe, there's also this equal and opposite potential for that tribe to turn quickly into tribalism where we become more about what we're against than what we're for. We become more about demonizing the enemy than breathing life into our people. And it's this potential for the negative with the positive that we're trying to balance in this sermon series to to say, yes, there is good things in this world that we live in today, but there is also the reality that we are soaked in a world of perceived connection, where we are loved, but it's a conditional love. That if you start saying things I disagree with, then I'm just going to shut you off. And it's very easy to unfriend and stop following and ignore. That cyberbullying has moved rampantly with the rise of anonymity and being able to do it. That I don't even need to look you in the face to shoot you down. And there's also this like, um, what, what I would just call like a thin perspective on reality. That even though we have all these communities that we are engaged in, the reality is the bigger the community gets, the more it becomes an echo chamber of what we think. That it just confirms what's already in our brain. And so we have this perspective on our group, but the reality is the deeper we get into that group, the less we see the other. And so our view of the world ends up getting thinner and thinner. That all the data suggests that our attention spans are getting less and less. All the data suggests that our attention spans are getting less and less. You'll get that. Okay. Um, <laughs> when I am in my car, it's why I, I listen to podcasts at one and a half speed. Any two, two times speeders in here? We got a few of you in the room. Like it's, it's because, well, I, I got to get stuff done. I got to get moving. And what's crazy is that We are more connected digitally than we have ever been, but all of the data suggests that we are lonelier than we have ever been. That we are lonelier than we have ever been. Last year, Great Britain made news when they appointed their first loneliness minister because they had done a survey that told them that 20%, 9 million of the population in Great Britain were lonely, chronically lonely. And if you start thinking, well, you know, it's those Brits over there. That's not us, right? Well, Gallup did a survey recently around the same topic, and they found that 35% of people in the United States are chronically lonely. A third of the people in this room. Robert Putnam, in his book, Bowling Alone, in 2001, he, he, he talked about this reality that while we are, he used the example of bowling, that he talked about how we were bowling more than ever, but we weren't in bowling leagues anymore. That there was something about our desire to be connected, but not actually to do it in person. Like, we wanted to stay connected, but we didn't want to actually let you in close enough to see what's really going on. And so... The question that we're sitting with today and that I want to uh, wrestle with today is, do the pros outweigh the cons? 
Does, does our engagement in social media, does it outbalance? Is it out of balance? Does it outweigh our connection with folks in person? Do we, have, do we have something out of balance in how we're engaging in this new world? And what does it mean to follow Jesus in this context? And, and so last week, Greg really spent a lot of time talking about the what of technology, but I want to talk today more about the why. Like, why do we engage in it? Because if there are all these negatives and the data continues to show we are lonelier than ever, then why do we do it? And how do we respond to it? And so I want to talk about three whys of why we do it. The first one I believe of why we engage in this is that we believe in the myth of online community. We believe in the myth of online community. And and what I want to say about this is that it's not that online communities don't provide a benefit to us. I think the problem is when we put the cart before the horse. When we start seeing online community as an end rather than a means and an incubator that can then spur us and draw us back into kingdom community. This kingdom community that that can actually breathe accountability and commitment and transparency and like I can show up with the actual unpolished version of myself, not like the acceptable vulnerability version of myself that maybe you show on Facebook or Instagram. It's like the cute crying rather than the ugly crying. Like this kingdom community where we show up looking like we're ugly crying and actually being accepted when we do it. I mean, I think that's one of the things that Dan was talking about with what we try and do at the refuge is be that kind of place. And yet we continue to seek after these online communities. And and I think why we do that to some extent is that we were created for it. We were created with this innate desire from a triune God to be in intimate relationship. And and, and when we don't have that relationship in person, we will seek it out and grab it wherever we can find it. And there's a problem with it, though, because we seek it out, and yet we have this twin and competing desire and tendency. And Greg talked about this last week, that on the one hand, we are pursuing to live out in community the way God has made us, And on the other hand, we have this unyielding and insatiable tendency to monetize and weaponize the innate desires of the human heart. Aren't we a wonderful folk? That we can't just say, well, isn't that beautiful that you're seeking out community? We have to say, oh gosh, we could figure out a way to use that. We could figure out a way to monetize that. We could figure out a way to weaponize that in some way. It's like The way I was picturing this was, I love this visual that David Brooks used in an article. He talked about like kids standing around a flagpole and you've got one kid hanging on to the pole and then you've got a line of five kids who are, their arms are wrapped together and then they start spinning as fast as they can, as fast as they can. And when they're doing that, there are two competing forces. There's the centrifugal force, which is the force trying to pull them apart as they spin faster and faster. But then there's also this competing force called the centripetal force, which is this force that the more they spin, the tighter their arms get locked together. And the vision of kingdom community was supposed to be such that the centripetal force would outweigh the centrifugal force. Tweet that somewhere. That um, the idea was that the community would hold us together when all the world is spinning around us. And yet what happens when the community shows up in an online place where then we can manipulate it and monetize it to fit what we want, then the force that pulls us apart is stronger than the force that holds us together. 
Tribalism ends up winning out. It's why David Brooks calls tribalism the dark twin of community. And yet, at the same time, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. There's nothing that is like sinful about engaging in those communities or being connected in the digital world that especially for people who have felt ostracized and ignored and belittled, particularly by the church, who have found a home in some of these communities when they felt like they couldn't walk in the doors of a place like this anymore. But what I want to argue is that the opposite of bad community is not online community. That the opposite of bad community is beautiful, good kingdom community. That to, to believe that if the church that we've found is tainted and is ostracizing us and is ignoring us and is demeaning us, that the place where we're not going to find the truth that is ultimately going to breathe life is not going to be in an online community because the larger that gets, the more potential there is to distort the more potential there is for us to miss, um, miss what God is trying to bring us to pay attention to. And I love the way Eugene Peterson puts this. He says, crowds lie. Anybody know that's true? <laughs> the more people, the less truth. In crowds, the truth is flattened to fit a slogan. It becomes two-dimensional. Not only the truth spoken, but the truth lived is reduced and distorted by the crowd. The crowd makes spectators of us, passive in the presence of excellence or beauty. The crowd makes consumers of us, inertly taking in whatever is pushed on us. As spectators and consumers, the central and foundational elements of being human, our ability to create, our drive to excel, our capacity to community with God, these things start to atrophy. And so what, what, what I believe is happening is that when we start to turn online community into an end rather than a means and an incubator to bring us back into community, we miss out on the beauty of what kingdom community is supposed to be, the ugly, messy, addicted, and committed version of community. Which sort of leads me to the second reason why I think we continue to engage in these online communities, in this digitally saturated world, and it's because we are addicted by design. And just to, the caveat is, it's not God's design that we would be addicted to these, but we are still addicted nonetheless. That it's not by chance that we are drawn into the digital world. It's not by chance that I have completed more Candy Crush levels than was probably appropriate in the last two weeks. This is not random occurrence. Last week, Greg mentioned the verse in 2 Corinthians, and here's what it says. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 to 11 This is from Paul. He says, If you forgive anyone anything, so do I. And whatever I have forgiven, if indeed I've forgiven anyone anything, which I think is interesting. Paul couldn't remember anybody he needed to forgive. It's all happened under the eyes of the Messiah and for your own sake. The point is that we shouldn't be outsmarted by the Satan, by the adversary, by the enemy. We know what he's up to. And what I want to argue is that I think most of us, myself included, are blind oftentimes to what Satan is up to in the digital world and the online networks and the communities that we are a part of. And I think what Paul is getting at here is that how we live and how we interact relationally, whether it's in this church or with other people or online, it is not a benign thing. That it actually is a place where Satan would love to create rifts and divides 
and places of separation and tribes and factions. And like, I, I can imagine it happening this way. Like, let's say between this week and next week, um, let, let's say the God-honoring team, the Vikings, ends up winning this afternoon. And let's say I decide to, uh, I decide to tweet a number of things about how wonderful their 30-point victory was. And, and then we have some, some people that are still in the process of sanctification in this room who cheer for the Packers. And, um, and they see what I have tweeted. And they, 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 they come next week and they say, oh, there's that guy. I know what he's about. I know that, you know, he could have been tweeting something thoughtful like, um, blessed are the people who mourn or blessed are the peacemakers or some Bible verse that would have been more thoughtful. But he decided to tweet about a football game. I know what he's all about. I know what he cares about. And, and, and so we create narratives, right? We create the story of what we now know about somebody or, or, or maybe we decide to hit a more hot button issue and we start talking about politics and we post something about politics and so now I see you next time and I don't even need to walk across the room to get to know you because I know you. I got the narrative in my head. And, and so what should have been a place that draws us together as a community starts to set us apart into tribes. I know what this guy thinks, I know what that woman thinks, I know what this person is all about, I know what they are all about. And this dream of connection ends up getting twisted on its head and pulls us apart from each other. Just think of the last election. And information gets spewed into the bloodstream of the internet to drive us in specific directions, to, to both be echo chambers of what we already think, but then also to try and manipulate us and drive us in a certain direction, which again leads me to ask, why do we go back to this? What is it about this that draws us in? I, I had a friend of mine this last week who told me I needed to watch a documentary um, on Netflix called The Great Hack. Anybody seen that? It's, uh, for, if you have some like partisan buzzers, uh, this one is a bit lefty, um, so just know that if you decide to watch it. But they're, argue, like, they're looking at the scandal of uh, the company Cambridge Analytica around the last election and the Brexit and all that kind of stuff, and they talk about the trillion dollar industry that is data mining and grabbing our information. That data is now a more valuable commodity than oil. That to gather our information that gets skimmed off of the social networks and online locations that we are active in is big business. And it's not just business for fun. It's business for money. It's business to weaponize. It is information warfare. And it's information warfare that gets customized and tailored uniquely to fit the biases we already have in order to get us to elect this person to get us to vote this way, to get us to buy this product, that it's not benign. Which leads me to want to talk to you about casinos. And before we dive into casinos, here's my caveat. I'm not promoting you go to casinos, love Jesus, make good decisions, use your money wisely, give it all to the church, and then you can't go to casinos. It works well. Um, but here's the thing. This is a picture of a casino in the 1950s. Isn't that cute? Do you see the slot machines? Yeah, there's like one, I can't tell if that's a, I think it's a woman, um, that is down in the corner there who's on a slot machine, and, um, but the table games are all in the middle and they're packed, right? Now, why was nobody at the slot machines? Yeah, they didn't make money. 
and people didn't want to go to them. That the reason why that they, there are so few of them and people weren't going to them is that they didn't get drawn to them. They didn't care. And so in the 1950s, this is what a casino looked like. And it's around this time that a psychologist by the name of Dr. B.F. Skinner started doing some of his work at Harvard. And he decided to investigate the field of behaviorism. And his belief was that psychology, in its best form, should be a place that is able to control and predict human behavior. And he did not believe in free will. He might not choose this church, um, because that's pretty heavy uh, on what we believe around here, around the free will of humanity. But what, what he decided to do is to try and investigate how people do their behaviors, how to predict it, how to control it. He designed this experiment that later was called the Skinner Box. And here's what it looked like. So the Skinner Box is a box with a rabbit, like most, or a rat, like most good experiments start. And what, just as a side note, it took about a year after Skinner's research was published and verified as working that the military took this, put a pigeon in the box, and then weaponized the pigeon. Like, for real, we can't last long without weaponizing something. But the basic idea of it is that the rat is in the cage, and there was a little lever there which Skinner called the slot machine. And what would happen is they started out the, the experiment where the rat would push on the lever, and every time he pushed on the lever, he got food. And then he'd push again and he got food. He'd push again, he got food. He'd push again, he got food. And eventually they found out if there's always food when he pushes the lever, eventually he stops pushing the lever. Because he knows if I want food, I'll just go over there and push the lever because I know that's where you get food. So what they did is they changed the way the experiment worked and they started using what they called variable ratio enforcement. Which what that meant is the rat would push the lever like two times and then he'd get some food, but then he'd have to push it five more times to get more food, and then he'd push it three times to get food, maybe nine times more to get food, maybe three times again, maybe 12 times to get food. So the rat never knew when the food was coming, and what, what happened is the rat just kept pushing the lever. Because it was like, well, I know there's going to be food at some point, but I have to just keep pushing the lever and pushing the lever and pushing the lever. And they had this amazing blending of tension and release. Tension and release, not too much, not too little. And this psychological condition was then applied to slot machines. A blending of tension and release, tension and release, where slot machines start transition from that point on and use the psychological conditioning that Skinner found in order to integrate that into slot machines so that not only was there variable ratio enforcement in when you won on a slot machine, but they would actually integrate it into the way the, the lights and the sounds moved. So even if you lost, you felt like you won. How convenient. And this is a picture of, of a casino today. Can you find the slot machines anywhere? Why are there more slot machines? Because they make more money. It's where people will spend day after day after day. And the goal of these slot machines is, as psychologists describe it, to get you into the zone. And the zone is defined as this place where you flow through a lens darkly. That you are hyper-focused. We are neurotransmitters of buzz. So our brain is just all the neurons flying all over the place, and that, all the buzzing, the hyper-focus is directed toward a numbness with no goal in particular. Doesn't that sound great? 
That we are not thinking, but we are fully engaged. We are not noticing what's happening, but we are fully receptive. That we are taking it all in, but we're not actually aware of what we're taking in and what it's doing to us. And it was this thinking, this psychological conditioning that Skinner noticed in the Skinner box that then got translated into the slot machine that then got translated into this. That it's not by chance that we get addicted to this. It's not by chance that somehow Facebook never stops scrolling. It's like, how is there more news right now? It's like, it, it's not by chance that I can just keep going on Insta stories. Like, I, I thought I was done and then there's more. Like, it's not by chance that, well, I have a problem with Candy Crush I've talked about and I, I know I should really talk to somebody about this. Like, it is not by chance that we are addicted by design. And so the question is, are we okay with that? Or are we angry about it? Like, is there something about it that makes us think, oh gosh, I, it, what would it look like to have disengagement from that? What would it look like to say, God, where am I being led astray? How is the way that I'm interacting in the online world in this digitally saturated place that I live right now, how is it pulling me in a direction that is antithetical to you? And can I be more awake to Satan's schemes, to the way that the world is being designed to manipulate me? Which leads me to the third reason why I think we continue to move into this world and continue to pursue all of this ultra-connectedness. And it is that we are living without limits. That we show up looking for community in a place that cannot meet our deepest innate desire from God, into a matrix and a system designed to monetize and weaponize our data and designed to addict us and get us into the zone. And add to this, uh, last night we were talking about Top Gun, and uh, add to this, we live like we're going Mach 3 with our hair on fire. You guys remember that quote from Top Gun? Like, we live like crazy people. We live as if the world is just spinning so fast and we have to try and keep up with it. And look at how Thomas Merton describes this world. He says, There is a pervasive form of contemporary violence. It's called activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything is to succumb to violence. It kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. And here's the thing. I see you because I see me. I, I see us at the end of the day. I see us tired. I see us running around trying to do all the things that we need to do to make ends meet. I see us trying to take the kids wherever they need to go. I see us trying to make sure we can pay all the bills on time. I see us trying to do all the projects at home. I see us trying to connect with all the right people. And then I see us getting to the end of the day and just saying, oh, I'm so tired. Where's my friend Netflix? Where is Facebook? Where can I just make a comment on somebody's fringe political belief, and I'm sure it'll make things better. 
I'm sure somebody wants my feedback on their, the haircut they gave their dog. I'm sure somebody needs me to desperately comment on their house color. Like it's, and what it does is we end up in the zone, which is a dangerous place to be sometimes, especially when we're that tired. And it is in that context that I hear the words of Jesus reverberating to us in our soul when he says, come to me. He says at the end of the day, come to me when you are tired, when you are angry, when you are lonely, when you are hungry. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. I, I, I work at Union Gospel Mission, and one of the things we do there is we, we work with a lot of folks that are dealing with chronic addiction and, uh, and drug issues. And um, uh, we, we talk about in that context the, how to deal with the, the, what is always going to potentially come of this potential to go back to addictive choices. And so we, we, we talk about the things that make us most susceptible to those. And, and we use this acronym, H-A-L-T, when we are hungry, when we are angry, when we are lonely, when we are tired. That's when we are most susceptible to walking into environments and blowing up with tirades, with blowing up with anger, with blowing up with insensitivity, with blowing up with addictive behaviors. And you see the through line between that and how many of us engage in social media when we are at the end of our rope, when we are so tired. And we show up into this place in that state where we are tired and angry and lonely and Remember that while it is an opportunity to connect in community, it has this equal principle of proportionality that is going to draw us in to try and remind us that we are lacking. Because remember, the goal is to monetize us. The goal is to turn our information into a way for somebody else to make money. And so we walk into this community hoping it's going to breathe new life or give us at least some reprieve. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves clicking on that shopping option on Instagram. Do you think that's by chance? That we end up in the zone and all of a sudden somebody has monetized our hunger, our anger, our loneliness, our tiredness. And it is in this context that I think we have one of the most amazing disciplines from the life of Jesus and from Scripture to give us an opportunity to say, enough. And it is this incredible discipline called Sabbath. This rhythm built into the creation of the world of disengagement in order to re-engage. That Sabbath ultimately is about four main disciplines. It's about stopping. Hmm. It's about resting. It's about resting from multitasking. It's about resting from hurry. It's about resting from technology. So it's about stopping, it's about resting, and it's about delighting. That in my house, what Sabbath means is the most epic charcuterie board you could imagine. It is all the cheese, especially smoked Gouda. It is all the salami. It is all the crackers. It is, and if you ha don't have this, you don't have a proper charcuterie board. It is about all the fig jam. 
that gets spread and the cheese and the, it, I mean, praise God. Um, <laughs> that God says, I don't want you to miss the good stuff. That I want you to remember that when you are tired, when you are angry, when you are lonely, when you are hungry, I'm going to feed you with the good stuff. And the good stuff is stopping, it is resting, it is delighting, and it is contemplating the goodness of God. It is remembering that I don't just need to be somebody consuming everything, I can actually receive the goodness of God who says you are enough. Who says you don't need to fill an empty void because I already did that. I already told you who you are. I've already interpreted everything you need to know about yourself, and it is that I'm for you. And I think it, 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 Sabbath also is the day when we get to pretend the Wi-Fi is out even if it isn't. It's the day to walk into a space with a community of somebody that we love and to speak into that truth and say, this is an antidote. This is a revolutionary action to say that the way the culture is going, we can walk into and we're going to walk towards it, but it doesn't mean we do it on empty. We don't walk into this digitally saturated world in the same way the rest of the world does. We do it breathing kingdom life because if we show up having stopped, having rested, having delighted, having contemplated the goodness of God, we have actually gotten the muscle to be able to speak hope and healing and beauty and joy and restoration. And it is in that moment we get to kingdomize the online communities. We get to breathe life into Instagram. We can bring hope into Twitter. We can bring joy into Facebook. And not just some kind of Thin joy, but like a deep joy. A deep joy that breathes life. Because I am convinced that we will never drift into emotional and spiritual and relational health. It is not going to happen by chance. It, it never has been able to, and I would argue in this current context we live in, it will never happen. That if we just think, well, we're just going to go along with the status quo, we are never going to somehow end up looking like Jesus. That it is going to take intentional rhythms of disengagement in order to allow us to engage with the beauty of the kingdom of God. So, as we start to close, I have a few questions that I want us to sit with. And I'm going to ask these and um, just know I've been living in these, so welcome to my misery. So try and personalize these for you. In what ways am I living without limits? In ways that are making me more susceptible to the lies of Satan? Is my level of online connectedness outpacing my level of connectedness with God and those around me? Who are you ignoring when you're connected in that way? Do I recognize the way that I am addicted by design. And if we do, are we angry about it? Or are we apathetic? Are, are we just saying, well, it's just the world I live in. What, what am I going to do? Or, or I, 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 some of us will say, well, I don't have anything to hide. Take my data, whatever. And not realizing that it's being used to draw us in a way that is antithetical to the kingdom of God. And then in what ways am I trusting that online community can meet the deep, innate need for intimate community? In what ways am I believing that engaging in community in that way 
is going to be an end rather than a means and an incubator to draw me into intimate kingdom community. And as kingdom people, I think this is one of those most profound opportunities for us to use what Greg talks about, this idea of using divine Aikido. Because Aikido is this, this type of martial arts where when somebody comes to us with all of their strength, we just are able to use their own strength against them. Because when we walk into online community, we walk into it in a way where we have stopped, we have rested, we have delighted, we have contemplated, then we get to breathe life back into that community. We can take what the enemy intended for evil and we can bring the kingdom good into it. That we can say, I'm going to engage in that community, but I'm going to do it in a way that looks like Jesus. I'm going to do it in a way that when somebody is getting torn down, that I can breathe life back into them. I'm going to do it in a way when, when I hear somebody's kind of belief that I'm like, what is that? That I'm going to actually walk up to them and say, help me understand what you're thinking. That we might actually be able to break the chains of tribalism in order to breathe kingdom life into communities that need it. And I want to just say a couple thing, uh, other things before we close. The first thing is I, I, I want to speak something to our Podrishner community. We have thousands and thousands of people who listen to these sermons from around the globe. And, and many of our Podrishner community connect here because they've had some very, very negative experiences in local churches. And what I want to say is, while we want to be a place of refuge for you, we want to be a place where you can be fed again. I also want to say that for some in our Podrishner community, you've been using that as an excuse to not get back in the game. That you've been using that as a way to say, well, that's my church. When the reality is that that community is not going to meet the innate needs that God gave you. And so for some in our Podrishner community, it means you need to take the terrifying step to engage with one other kingdom disciple and say, how can I take one step to walk back into community? And for those in this room who are part of this church at Woodland Hills, I think what it means is what is the next step that God is asking you to take to more deeply connect in kingdom community? It could be the refuge. It could be Wednesdays together. It could mean volunteering somewhere. It could mean helping out with Heroes Gate. It could mean looking into house churches that, that we have here. It, it could mean any number of things. But I, I think in order for us to counteract the reality of the saturated digital world that we live in, we have to be continually seeking more and more kingdom community so that as we interact in this world, we are able to breathe life rather than just maintain and grow the tribalism. So my hope for us is that as we engage in this online world, in these communities that God has put us in, that we have found ourselves together in, that we would be so deeply rooted in kingdom community that when we show up there, it's good news for the internet, that it's good news for Facebook, that it's good news for Twitter, that it's good news for Instagram because the euangelion, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news everywhere it shows up. It doesn't matter where it is. And that is the beauty of what we want to proclaim throughout the world. So, as we close, would you stand with me? I'm going to invite our prayer teams to come forward. Um, these folks would love to pray with you if there's anything whatsoever that you could use prayer for. 
And if you've never had the opportunity to be introduced to this Jesus who says, come to me and you will find rest for your very souls. These folks would love to introduce you to that Jesus. And as we close, I'm going to invite you to just stretch out your hands and receive this benediction. And now, may the God who created you for community, may you be reminded that you are enough. May you be reminded that there's nothing you can do to earn the love he says you already have. And may you be empowered with that love. And may you be engaged in community and the kingdom of God in such a way that it breathes gospel into every avenue of the world, the internet and everything else. God, go with you. Have a great, great morning. Thanks for being here.